Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Good morning. My name is Ryan Lundy, and I am privileged to serve here as the Young Adults Pastor. I am the other Ryan, so you can call me Lundy. Um, but it is my privilege to be serving here and our young adult ministry. If you are a young adult or if you know someone who's in their 20s, I would love to meet you. I'd love to meet them. Uh, the 20s are something of a coming-of-age decade in our society. And so many of the changes or the choices that we make affect all sorts of things. And so it can be a trying and challenging time. And so I would love to meet you and invite you into our community and our ministry. We meet Sunday nights here on campus. And it's my privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, before we dive into the scriptures, a little bit of a story. Last month, I was having coffee with a friend of mine who happens to not be a Christian. Uh, we met through a mutual friend, and after building something of a relationship together, uh, we began to meet up on a weekly basis, and we've been reading the Bible together. It has just been an absolute joy for me in ministry this past year um, to be doing this with him. And just last month, we were in a particularly deep conversation and it wasn't the fact that I wasn't seeking it. I just all of a sudden was surprised by how deep we got. And all of a sudden, I found myself in that moment very naturally asking him, would you like to place your faith in Jesus? Now, I could tell from his eyes that he wanted to say yes. And yet I could also tell that there was all other parts of him. There was a part of him that was holding back. He wasn't fully committed, and he was rather uh, sheepish about it. And so I asked him, what is it that's keeping you from saying yes? He struggled to fully put it to words. And at this point, I'm kind of going through my flashcards. I'm thinking, is it evolution? Is it the church's teaching on sexuality? You know, is it politics? Whatever it is, what is it that's keeping him from saying yes? His answer was not what I was expecting. He said, Ryan, I'm afraid I'll become like Christians. <laughs> I'm afraid I'll become uncaring, unloving, unaware of how to care for my friends. He was afraid to become like us. Now, in this moment, I was trying not to take it personally. And I was trying to understand what it was that he meant. And again, I'm thinking maybe this is where he's, you know, the, the society's perceptions of Christians convicted for the truth coming off as unloving. Maybe that's kind of what he's meaning, but that's not what he described. Rather, what he described was a situation in which he watched a Christ-following family friend who had cut out and disowned a sister in her life because of a choice of, an, of a boyfriend, now, I don't know if the boyfriend was Machine Gun Kelly or if he was Mr. Boy Scout. That's not the point. The point is that my friend insisted that he had seen a repeated pattern among Christians. That as soon as we disagree, we divide. As soon as we come to blows, we break the relationship. We cut out, we cut off, we disown. Now, my friend is not originally from America, and he has observed this not just in one country, but in two. And he asked, he asked me, Ryan, if I become a Christian, will I no longer be loving? How is it that we've gotten this reputation? Now, I don't think it's fair to paint 
with a broad brush and to universalize one man's experience with the church. And let me just say, I know that there is so much generosity and kindness, my goodness, in this room, in our church. I know that because I've experienced it firsthand. But I've also experienced a whole lot of other things too. And I know I'm not alone. I know that we've all experienced all sorts of things. The problem is, is that what my friend has seen, he's not the only one. I too have seen it. I have seen it in myself. I've seen it in my close friends. I've seen it in church families that I admire, respect, adore. I've seen a pattern of behavior among us Christians that as soon as we grieve one another, we put the relationship in the grave. That as soon as we disagree, we divide. It's because it's our default programming. We don't know what else to do, perhaps. You might have been unfortunate enough to have heard the phrase, you're dead to me. You see, grievances provide the justification for killing the relationship and unfortunately with it any chance for real growth. I know firsthand in our ministry, 20-somethings, godly kids come into our ministry, coming from families that based on disagreements that from all appearances do not seem to be matters of first importance, are disowned, thrown at, cast out. In our series, Failure to Launch, the Apostle Paul is addressing the way the Corinthian church became stunted in their growth, and he drew out some of the things that caused them to get stuck. Today, we're going to see one more way that they got stuck, and specifically, we are asking today, what would it look like? What would it look like if our grievances didn't go to the grave, didn't lead to the grave, but actually provided us the most unique opportunities for growth? What if, is it possible that they could mean something more for us as individuals and as a community? Well, in order to answer that question today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Last week, if you were with us, you know that uh, we covered how sin can compromise so much. It can compromise our individual joy, our security, our peace, our patience, uh, the voice of God itself. Um, It can also compromise the integrity of our community. Now, distinctly but somewhat related, Paul picks up that same line of logic and he dives into chapter 6 of verse 1. He has this to say. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know? The saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, if you read that and you're like, what? You're among friends. This is a unique thing in Paul's thinking. This is a unique thing in the Bible. And the reality is is that Paul's understanding of judge isn't just this judgmentalism that you and I might think of when we hear that word. Rather, the Greek word that he uses carries a connotation of discernment. You see, when we Christians, the church has been given the sight of God and Jesus himself. And when we see Jesus, we see everything in light of him. 
We don't just see things based on appearances. We see to the heart of the matter. And this discernment is given for the church to be able to judge all things, to discern all things, to be able to see through the deceptions and the narratives and the appearance of things to the heart of the matter. And so you can imagine perhaps why Paul is just a little bit disappointed with the Corinthians. Because they've been invited into the cosmic judgment of God. That God is sharing with them his his knowledge, his discernment. And here they are settling for the childish scandals in their midst. He is inviting them to judge all things. And they are settling for the soap opera days of our lives. Keeping up with the Kardashians. He said this. She did that sort of scandals. You see, for Paul, the Corinthians are throwing away what God has given. He continues, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother And that before unbelievers. You see, what was happening in the Corinthian church was that they were dragging one another to court over all sorts of matters. One thing to keep in mind is that during the Roman Empire, um, the concern for honor was massive. You see, there was all, there's, there's this chase to just establish standing, status, honor seeking. And so if you were insulted or slighted or offended, it wasn't just the insult or the offense in and of itself. It was that your reputation was on the line. You lost face. You lost standing. And so it was up to you to secure your honor again. And the Corinthians were looking to the courts to be able to secure that honor. Essentially, they were using the courts as a matter of first response of suing. Now, hear me out. There are some things that are worth bringing to court. Malpractice, fraud, abuse, murder, right? There's all sorts of different things that merit bringing things to court. But other things, not so much. My point isn't to say that suing is never an option. The point is is that it should not be our first option. It should not be our first option. Rather, it should be our final regretful last resort. You see, there's a world of difference between suing someone as a matter of first response versus that of a final one. The fact that the Corinthians were doing it so readily set a terrible witness to the Corinthians. And what's interesting is if you take this chapter in context of the previous one, you know that the Corinthians are establishing a name for themselves in the worst of ways. You see, as sexually deviant as the Roman Empire was in the day, there was one thing that the Romans didn't practice, and that was incest. And here in chapter 5, the, Christian, the Christians in Corinth are bragging about their incest. And now in chapter 6, they are dragging the name of the, of the Lord through the dirt by dragging one another to court. They are the talk of the town in the worst of ways. Paul says, don't you realize how bad an example you're setting? If your own house is not in order, why would anyone want to come over. You see, one of the things I think that the Corinthians show us tragically about human nature is that when we grieve one another, 
when we hurt one another, when we offend one another, man, that just leads us to insisting on our rights. It leads us to crying foul, to point out we're the victim, that we've been wronged, to claim how our rights have been trampled on. If you doubt me, just look at the world of sports, right? There's nothing better than having a ref call a play for your team, isn't there? And there's a, it's even better when he calls a foul on the opposing team, especially when that team is the New Orleans Saints. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. <laughs> you see, we love, we love having a ref's decision. We love having a court's decree. You see, what makes it so nice for us is that it makes the opposing team not just unlikable, but unethical. Not just our opponents, but evil. Because my team is the upstanding definition of morality. My team is the standard of upright sportsmanship. They're the rule breakers. They're the ones that are evil. And on account of that, I can discount everything. You see, we love to have that impartial third party come in and say, you are totally vindicated in how you feel. There's nothing for you to learn from the situation. They're in the wrong. How convenient is that? See, the Corinthians were using the courts to try to gain the upper hand to declare the other party as in the wrong. Paul says, listen, to have lawsuits at all, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's like argue on the internet. It's like even if you win, you've lost, clearly. You're in a tuffle over something that you haven't even been able to see another person. And yet we continue to harp on it. Maybe this is why we always insist on fairness. That's what rules are, aren't they? It's matter, it's an attempt to keep things fair. I always remember complaining, but dad, that's not fair. And you see, there's nothing fairer, is there, than getting even. There's nothing fairer. Perhaps it's part of the reason why the Jews had the mantra, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, you gotta turn the other cheek. Mahatma Gandhi concluded rightly when he said, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. So rough is that once we all start getting what we deserve, it's hard to know where to draw the line, right? All of a sudden we find ourselves on a slippery slope with no off ramps. We don't know who's actually gonna leave with their sight intact. And this is the terrifying thing about justice and perhaps our justice system is that the levers of power are pushed and pressed by fallen human beings. And if the way the Corinthians were trying to use the justice system is any indication about you and me is that our cries for justice maybe, just maybe, are simply cries for vengeance. That are insistent on what's right, fair, Maybe we're not as impartial as we like to think. Because the Corinthians clearly weren't. 
In the book of Galatians, Paul gives a similar warning to what he says to the Galatians or to the Corinthians. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See a nibble here, a bite there. Oh, it's all too easy to become caught up in the all-consuming fight for revenge. The world of tit for tat becomes an all-consuming game. You know, I learned this firsthand when I had roommates. Oh, you didn't do your dishes. Bummer. Looks like I'm not taking out the trash. Oh, you didn't clean up after yourself. Well, my laundry's going to stay in there. Passive-aggressive comment there, cold shoulder there, an outright attack thrown in. Before you know it, we are at each other's throats with a big blow-up, way worse off than where we started from because we climbed that ladder that leads to nowhere, the game of tit-for-tat. You see, there is a policy of either escalation or de-escalation when it comes to grievances, and the policy of escalation is tit-for-tat. It's the way of the world. And unfortunately, it comes all too easy, right? None of us need to learn this. <laughs> and we're learning this firsthand, unfortunately, when it comes on the world stage. Russian President Vladimir Putin, a week into his invasion with Ukraine, put his nuclear arsenal on high alert to try to discourage any sort of intervention with the conflict in Ukraine. Never mind that if things actually came to that, Russia would be equally as obliterated, would it not? But that's exactly what happens when you're that obsessed with winning the battle. We're willing to entertain ideas, strategies, ways of getting back that will win us the battle, but man, it will cost us everything. It will, we will lose the war. Maybe everything else with it. There's a policy of escalation. And then there's the policy of de-escalation. Hey, you know what? Policy of escalation, tit for tat. But hey, Jesus says there's grace for all of that. First service laughed at that. <laughs> we'll talk more about what that means entirely. But the reality is, is that it's all too easy for us to fall prey to all sorts of different ways of getting back at each other. And it's also so easy because when we, all of a sudden this happens in the church, right? We have a sympathetic ear that we turn to and they start, you know, giving us uh, feedback or, man, I can't believe that they did that or, man, they're absolutely terrible. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in a really toxic situation because we do the wrong kind of talking. If you doubt this, look no further than the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> Started in 1991 ran on live television for 27 years. Finally had its last season in 2018, and all throughout it, so many tragic and pathetic situations were dragged before a national audience for entertainment. And America loved it so much that other networks took note and launched Judge Judy. Judge Judy just had its final season. Actually, it ran for 25 seasons. And if you're in the crowd, that's like, man, I missed Judy. Well, guess what? You're in luck. She's back. <laughs> Judy Justice is just starting out. You can, you can watch it on, I believe it's IMDb. So if you're in the streaming game, that's for you. And guess what? Ju Jerry became a judge. He's back <laughs> for season three. 
He passed the bar. We had no idea. <laughs> Jerry. You see, what this shows us is that there's an insatiable demand in our society for grievances, isn't there? There's an insatiable desire for the juicy stories of he said, she said, they did, all sorts of things. We love, despite ourselves, love the juicy gossip that and you see, one of the dangers about a church like ours, we're blessed. We've got generations of people, families, people born and buried and everything in between. It's a beautiful thing. But the danger with that is we also could potentially have generations long of grievances, laundry list, that if we're not careful, stack up, could get the better of us experiences in childhood, hurts that we've carried since high school, our family standing in the lineup, our place in the pecking order, or the ways that others have seen us or pigeonholed us all through life. And with each generation, it could potentially stack up if we're not careful. And what makes this whole thing so high stakes is that our community will either make or break in these moments. That either we will take our opportunity as Christ followers together or all that our gathering will amount to is biting, devouring, vengeance-seeking, and gossip. The choice is ours to make. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he is speaking to us today, urging us to realize our potential. And it's there, ours for the taking. The church can either be a hotbed of all this nasty fighting, or it can be a place that we fight evil with good and overcome. But if that is the case of all of us today, we must rise above the traps of our own selfishness and self-importance and seek the way of Jesus. And so what if the way that we responded to grievances for our community was actually the way Jesus did? That it wasn't about how perfect any of us were, but rather how we responded and cared for each other when we were imperfect. And so for the remainder of our time together, I'm going to be unpacking what I think is fueling Paul's letter to the Corinthians in this section and what our focus ought to be in dealing specifically when it comes to the issue of gossip. See, grievances provide a unique opportunity for growth. But when it comes to the specific issue of gossip, rather than going to one another, let's go to God first. Rather than talking about it with each other, let's go to God first. And man, if there's not a compassionate ear that God has for those who are hurting. If there's not a compassionate ear that he has for those who are hurting, this is the psalmist. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure me. They injure my case. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You see, what makes this whole thing so hard is that there's lifetime. There's a lifetime of wounds with each of us, isn't there? There's a lifetime of grievances represented by each person. 
But here's the hope. You don't have to keep track of how you've been wronged. God's got that covered. He's kept count of it. He sees. He knows. In fact, he cares more deeply about it than you or I do. And in fact, if there's anyone that God is close to, is it not to the brokenhearted? To those who are crushed in spirit? And yet, who are we to draw away from him during the times in which we've been hurt? You see, our God, this eternal being that we call God, looked out at all possibilities, everything that he could have done, and he decided to be Father. Father. Father to children that didn't deserve it. He wanted that. Who are we to rob him of the moment of going to our Father, of showing him how we've been hurt? Because that's what it all leads up to. Man, the wounds of life cut deep, but love goes deeper still. How else are you going to experience his fatherhood in your life if you're not open about your wounds with him? And you share it with everybody else. Man, how much we simply blow it when it comes to flippantly gossiping rather than going to the Father. You see, all of creation gets to experience God as creator. The angels even know him as sovereign, but humans are utterly distinct and privileged to know him as Father. Utterly distinct and privileged to know him as Father. Grievances given to God in prayer are in large part perhaps what it's all about. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be more inclined to believe this in the big parts of your life, but the smaller parts, you're like, you know what, God, I got it. You've got a lot on your plate. Don't worry about it. I'll take this one. You see, the problem is, is that it robs him of all the opportunities for, uh, for him to be trusted, not with just the big things, but for the little things too. In order to handle this, I think we have to have a policy of upward communication. A policy of upward communication. What is that? It's to say, listen, this is about my pay grade. <laughs> you gotta help me out here. Now, if you talk with any of the pastors that have supervised me during my time here, they will tell you, Ryan is terrible at this. Why? Because in my pride, I think I can handle it. I've got it covered. But what I have begun to learn and continue to learn is that when I don't communicate upwards, every situation goes downwards one way or another. <laughs> There's a bigger mess waiting for me. Policy of upward communication, just to simply say, please, would you handle this, God? Do you see me? Do you see what they've done? Do you see how I'm hurting? Let's be people that communicate that upwards. Now, you might have caught it in Psalm 56, but David writes this, in wrath cast down the peoples, O God. And you're like, can he write that? <laughs> or can I pray that? <laughs> Listen, there's a call for Christ's likeness in every part of our lives, but if you don't think that you are, in, are enabled to pray down God's judge justice on people, then you are not reading the Bible. Over and over and over again, God's people are exhorted to cry out for God's justice and to pray it. How else do you think Paul exhorts the Romans? He says, beloved, never, 
Never. Never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, every single time you and I are hurt, it's a powerful opportunity to trust in God's justice. God sees, God cares, God's going to do something about it. There we go, we got a couple people in the crowd. Are you really going to leave it to you to give the other person what they deserve? I mean, you might key their car, you might slash their tires, you might empty that bank account, you might make their life miserable for a little while, but are you ever going to really resolve that gaping hole that they've left? I know the answer is no for me. This is exactly what Paul's point is, as he's going back to the Corinthians. He says, listen, you don't need to take this into your own hands. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God is just. God is holy. God sees it all. And a day is coming when he will pay back everyone to what they're due. You don't need to worry about it. I don't need to worry about it. As much as we want to, as much as we're inclined to. Because in the big scheme of things, the ones that are doing you wrong are the ones to lose out. Because with every single decision that they harden their heart, that they sin, they drift further and further away from the goal of life, and that's God. Evil is its own punishment. Now, <laughs> honestly, when I've prayed prayers like this about certain people in my life, I can, I can confess that. This is church, right? Um, when I've prayed prayers... God, are you seeing what they're doing to me? I can't believe you're letting them get away with it. Who are you to be so negligent about my suffering, what I'm going through? Something very interesting happens. If I'm truly being forthright with the Father, and if I'm truly praying, very subtly, my anger turns to something else. His fatherly presence comforts me, his promises reassures me. And very quickly, I begin to all of a sudden begin by the supernatural power of the Spirit to truly care for those who have hurt me. Just as Paul says, listen, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. <laughs> for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That sounds like good vengeance, doesn't it? Burning coals. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, the men and women who have discovered this have totally put the world on its heels. The world doesn't know what to do with this. When we respond with, from evil to, with good, it just, it, people don't have categories for it. I've talked with uh, couples where either it's been a, a toxic marriage or a contentious marriage or one member of the family is not a believer, the other one is, and it's through conflicts like this where one spouse continues to show grace, repaying evil with good, that over the course of time, those grievances are actually the very thing that God used to win the heart. Such a powerful opportunity. You know, if we ask ourselves the question, in these situations, man, how can I best care for this person's spiritual good? 
Now, this might look like boundary setting because we don't want to enable. That, that would not do well for their spiritual good. We also might have to have a hard conversation. I've had, I've had hard conversations all my life. People have taken me aside and been like, Ryan, you're blowing it. Um, and uh, I love you. And it's how they say it that convinces me. You see, Paul describes himself in the, in the sequel to our current book, which is just as good as the first one, by the way. Um, he describes himself, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, an ambassador obsesses not just what to say, but how to say it. And when you and I respond to grievances with that same mindset and care and concern, man, the world doesn't know what to do with it. And it's in light of all of this that Paul has a kind of almost like an innocent question. He asks, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What do you have to lose? God's justice has it. He's given you everything you need. What is it that you have to gain? If you're defrauded, wronged, hurt, is it not the other person who loses out? Because with all of their evil, they are separating themselves from a good God and hardening their hearts for his wrath and punishment. And that's exactly what Paul reminds us as we continue reading, as we just read. All those people that do evil lose out. They do not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he includes this kicker at the end of the section. And such were some of you. Oh, I wasn't ready for that. You see, when we hurt one another, we all of a sudden get a window into human nature, maybe even ourselves. You see, every single time we hurt each other, we get a window into our own needs, our own failings, just as we see it in another person. It's an opportunity for tremendous self-reflection. Everyone loves that, don't they? You know, I don't know if you're familiar with a rock tumbler, but these things, you just throw a bunch of rocks in this thing and you turn it on and it jumbles it up and it completely thrashes all the rocks together. And it actually, in the process of all of this thrashing, the stones are made smooth. Ironically enough, the rock tumbler uses the rough edges of each of the stones to refine the others until finally all the stones are presentable. And if we have that same posture of a rumble and tumble community, your rough edges are my growth opportunities and vice versa. Man, I'm triggered. I didn't like that. Hmm, what does that have to say about me? I'm convinced that a community that embodies this cannot be stopped. Because I've seen it. I've seen it among many of you. I've experienced it firsthand. And again, we cannot be proud because, listen, the only thing that separates us from anyone, for, from the rest of the world, is just simply the fact that we were washed, we were sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all that separates us, it's all what He's done. And every time we've been hurt and every time we've hurt others, it's a powerful opportunity to receive and extend grace. That's 
what it is. Because grace is not just the gift that keeps on giving. It's also the gift that keeps on being given. If perhaps I have a hard time extending grace to another, have I really received it fully for myself? And in fully receiving it for myself freely, am I now freely giving? Just as the master says, And it's interesting because it's in these times of being hurt and trampled on that Paul actually says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3 that it's in suffering that he becomes like Christ. That actually the sufferings are key in the transformational process of becoming like him. I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, we grow as disciples of the man himself when grace is our response to grievance. And it's not fair. (laughs) But it is just. Because none of us got what we deserved, did we? Praise God that he took everything that we deserved. And you know, we see the love of God displayed on the cross, but for some of us, we also need to see his justice. What makes this so hard is the fact that, as we said earlier, there's a lifetime of wounds that are represented by just one person in here. This is how much God cares about what was done to you. This is how much he cares about the evil and the suffering and the pain that you have no answer for, he does. He took it all upon himself. He displays how he feels about it. And then he invites you to trust him. A couple of summers ago, a family friend of ours visited the African country of Rwanda. Now, if you remember back in the 1990s, the country of Rwanda fell into an absolute tragedy. There was a terrible genocide in which the Hutu majority uh, inflicted um, uh, terrible uh, casualties on the the Tutsi minority. 800,000 at least people lost their lives. And and our family friend went to Rwanda, visited. Thankfully, so many decades have passed and so many of the men and women who lived through that have begun to heal. And yet he met so many interesting people along the way. He met one woman who had been strapped to a chair by the Hutus and in front of her eyes was forced to watch as they killed every single one of of her children. And very surprisingly, they left her, figuring that she was left for dead. Now, later on, she was found and discovered and cared for, and she eventually came to faith in Jesus. And what she said to our family friend threw him off. She described what Jesus had done for her. She said, because of what Jesus has done for me, I am obligated to forgive those men. I speak the truth. I have no hate in my heart towards them. Man, can you imagine what a church with that response to evil will do? Can you imagine the power of a community that leads with that? 
Can you imagine how that would change Escondido? Can you imagine how that would change North County? The ends of the earth. What's amazing is that we have the same power. We can take hold of it today. Because God's glory is on display in and through you and me as ambassadors responding to grievances with his grace. Would you pray with me? Father God, you know how hard this is. As we've discussed already, Lord, you know all of the wounds and the hurts represented by the men and women in this room, things that I don't even know. Lord, it's hard enough for me individually. It's hard enough for us as a community. You know. So Father, would you help us? Jesus, would we cry out the same prayer that you prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So help us, Lord. Help us to turn the other cheek, to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies. It's in your name that we pray these things. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.